a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey, my name's Steve Hall, and I want to thank you for joining our Bible study today. Before we get into today's Bible study, I would like to invite you to come to check out our Standing Firm Bible study class in person. We're at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. We meet in the downstairs fellowship hall of the auditorium building at 10.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings immediately after the 9 o'clock worship service. Here's a little map for you. See the little red lines? (laughs) Notice if you're in the auditorium, just follow those red arrows. If you're in the back, go straight down that hallway behind you to the stairwell. If you're near the front of the auditorium, you can go out the left door, and I mean left as you're sitting in the auditorium looking toward the pulpit and the choir. Go to your left, go out that door, all the way down to the end of the hall, keep to your left, all the way down to the stairwell, and then turn right and go down the stairwell. We meet in the fellowship hall around the tables near the kitchen downstairs. If you have trouble with stairs, there are men driving golf carts near the entrance to the auditorium building at the crossover there who will be glad to give you a ride to a door that enters the building on our level, so you won't have to do any steps at all. We're a co-educational class, men and women both invited. We're for all ages, doesn't matter how old or how young. Children and youth are certainly welcome, but some children and youth actually prefer to go to the children and youth classes, which meet at the same time we meet, more on their level. Dress, totally casual. Class members are certainly encouraged to participate in the Bible study, ask questions, engage in conversation. But listen, if you happen to be kind of shy, we promise we're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to ask you to read. We're not going to ask you to pray. We're not going to ask you any specific questions directed to you. It isn't unusual for class members who are kind of shy just to not say anything at all once class gets started. So that's your choice. So I'm just saying, please don't feel intimidated if you happen to be the shy type. I know sometimes the first meeting is kind of tough for the shy people. But there's never been a time when it's been more important for God's people to meet in small Bible study fellowship groups in order to encourage each other. We've got to stand firm in his truth. We've got to stand firm on his word. These are very confusing days we're living in. You know that. So we'd love for you to join us and just see for yourself what God's doing in our class. If you'd like more information... Go to AboundingJoy.com. There's the web address right there on the screen. You can click on the Standing Firm Bible Class menu item when you get there. You may want to hit pause right now or do a screen save to get make sure you get the spelling right, but you can learn more information about us there. Now, here's today's Bible study. I hope and pray it helps you grow stronger in our Lord Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of His Word and of His will for your life. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. We've reached chapter four in our study of Romans. So let's start by reading the first three verses of Romans chapter four. This is God's word. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In verse 1 there, Paul calls Abraham our forefather according to the flesh. When he says our, he he means Paul himself and his fellow Jews, biologically speaking. He's their ancestor. 
Of course, the Jews looked to Abraham as their primary ancestor. He's the one God called to be the founding father of the Israelite people. Of course, we call them Israelites. They call themselves Israelites. God calls them Israelites after Abraham's grandson, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. So they're named after Abraham's grandson. The name Jews, by the way, which is the common name today, comes from Abraham's great-grandson, Judah. But ultimately, they don't look to Judah or even Israel, Jacob. They ultimately look to Abraham, back behind those guys, to Abraham. Abraham was born somewhere around 2100 B.C., 2100 years before the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. Abraham was born in Ur, U-R, a city not far from the ancient city of Babylon in the region that's sometimes called Eastern Mesopotamia, later would be called Chaldea. You can see it here on the map. It's very near where the Tigris and Euphrates rivers empty out into the Persian Gulf. He was probably, at least roughly speaking, there's some guesswork here, but he's probably a contemporary with Job. You remember Job, the man we learn about in the book named after him? First book in the Bible ever to be written, book of Job. Abraham lived about that time. He was also possibly a contemporary with the Tower of Babel. This is just an educated guess. We don't know exact dates, but he probably lived a few hundred years after the Noahic flood. Interestingly, because of the long lifespans of the men before the flood, including Noah, Abraham's lifespan actually overlapped Noah's lifespan. Did you think about Have you ever thought about that? <laughs> Noah's lifespan certainly overlapped Methuselah's lifespan many, many years. Methuselah's lifespan certainly overlapped Adam's lifespan many, many years. So Abraham could have talked with Noah, who could have talked with Methuselah, who could have talked with Adam himself. Isn't that fascinating to think like that? The Bible doesn't tell us that they did. I'm using my imagination here. Just It's a way of highlighting those early long lifespans. But we do know that Abraham's people, where he lived there in Mesopotamia, were idolaters. We know that because God told us that. He tells us through Joshua. In Joshua's very last speech to the leaders of Israel, he said this, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. So God called Abraham. The time, of course, his name was Abram. Later his name is changed to Abraham. But he called him from a life of idolatry. He definitely didn't call him because Abraham was such a good and godly man. We've got to get that clear in our head. Paul wants us to understand that. He called him because he's God. And God calls whomever he wants to call. It's, it's his choice, his will. We don't have to understand why he chooses whom he chooses. And even after God called him, we learn that Abraham was definitely not a perfect man by any means. <laughs> Remember how he tried to deceive Pharaoh? Remember that incident? He was trying to save his own skin by pretending Sarah wasn't his wife. He was afraid that Pharaoh would kill him, take Sarah for himself. I mean, that was much later. Even when he left Ur, there's a clue that he was dragging his feet about that, about going to the promised land. In Genesis 12, we read that God told him, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Sounds like he was supposed to leave his family behind. He didn't do that. Now, I know, maybe we consider it partly a good thing if his family said, well, we, we want to get in on what God's doing in your life. So maybe they journeyed with him for that reason. I don't know. But, but when they journeyed up the Euphrates River and finally reached Haran, 
instead of moving on down to Canaan, where God was telling him to go, they settled down right there in Haran. Genesis eleven thirty one says, listen to this carefully. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. That wording sounds like they really did leave Ur aiming to go into Canaan. And possibly, reading between the lines just a little bit, it was Abraham's dad, Terah, who said, this is as far as we're going to go. Because verse 32 tells us that Terah, Abraham's dad, died there in Haran. And after he died, after Terah died, Abraham did leave Haran and move on down to Canaan. So Terah's death seems to have been the trigger to get Abraham to fully obey God's original command to move to this land of Canaan. Now, I know we have to be careful about reading too much between the lines, but it certainly seems plausible. We're also told, of course, that his nephew Lot went along with Abraham and Sarah. A lot of conflict came out of that, too. Of course, there were other occasions when Abraham messed up. You remember much later, much, much later, how both he and Sarah doubted God? They weren't sure about God's promise, and he had sex with Hagar and their clumsy attempt to fulfill the promise God had given him. That led to some really bad outcomes. Anyway, Abraham finally did leave Haran, and he did go on down to Canaan. He was 75 years old at the time, and he traveled to Shechem. And the Lord appeared to him there and promised him a very important promise. He promised him that his descendants would live in this land he's in right now. He's going to have descendants, and they're going to be their land. Well, after that, there was a famine, so he and Sarah spent some time in Egypt (laughs) when he messed up with Pharaoh. Eventually, Abraham and Sarah moved back to Canaan, where God intended for them to be. And that's when, you may remember, the herdsmen working for Lot began to have conflict with Abraham's herdsmen, and they split up. Lot moved on down to Sodom. You probably remember the rest of that story. After that, some of the kings of the surrounding towns attacked Sodom, as well as some other towns there allied with Sodom, and they took Lot captive. When Abraham found out about that, he took 300 of his servants, over 300 actually, and chased them down and forced them to release Lot. It was at that point that Abraham met Melchizedek, a very important event in the Old Testament. The writer of Hebrews elaborates on that fascinating meeting with Melchizedek. Finally, though, after all these events had occurred, God appeared to Abram again, and we find Abram is questioning God's original promise. Abram's thinking, look, how are my descendants going to live in this land, like you said, when I don't even have a son? Because he's getting very old. Still, he has no son. He's questioning God at this point. So at this point, the Lord takes Abraham out of his tent, and he says, Abram, I want you to look up. Look toward heaven. Number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, God said to Abram, so shall your offspring be. And look at verse 6. And he, Abram, believed the Lord. And he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. He believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And of course, that's the verse that Paul's quoting here in Romans chapter 4. 
quotes it again. It's so important in his letter to the Galatians, chapter 3, verse 6. Just as Abram believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. James quotes this same verse in his letter, the second chapter. Scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. This is an important verse. Of course, Abraham turns out to be very significant in the New Testament. His name appears over 70 times in the New Testament. We know that David, King David, is also hugely important in the New Testament, but his name is only mentioned 54 times. Kind of gives you a clue about the importance of Abraham. Eventually, when Abraham is 85 years old, he and Sarah decide that maybe God wanted them to take some initiative in making this promise happen. So Sarah offers Abraham her handmaid, Hagar, and Abraham agrees, and Hagar becomes pregnant and gives birth to Ishmael when Abraham is 86. Bad decision. Thirteen more years go by. Now Abraham is 99, and the Lord appears to him again. And he reminds him of the promise. And it was at this point that God gave Abraham the sign or the symbol of his covenant with him, the sign of circumcision. That was when Abraham was 99 years old. When the Lord finished meeting with Abraham that time, Abraham immediately obeyed God. He and his 13-year-old son Ishmael and all the men who were his servants were immediately circumcised. Finally, when Abraham was 100 years old, Sarah gave birth to Isaac. She would have been 91 at the time. Now, with that background, remember, this verse is so important, it's quoted three times in the New Testament. Paul quoted here in verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Look at it one more time in Genesis 15. He brought him outside and said, look toward heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And what next? And Abraham obeyed the Lord, and so he demonstrated his righteousness. Oh, no, no. He believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. The Greek word counted, by the way, Paul uses here, means credited, put into his account. Same idea as if I had one of your checks and I copied down the routing number and the account number and went to your bank and said, I'd like to credit this account with $10,000. <laughs> Don't you wish? That would be a gift, not a wage. God credited righteousness to Abraham's account. Why? Because Abraham believed God. Look at verse 4. Now, the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Every two weeks, I get a check from Cross Creek Christian School. When they deposit that check into my account, they don't say, here's a little gift for you, Steve. <laughs> if they said that, I'd probably say, I want to make a correction here. This is not really a gift. I'm working for this. A paycheck's not a gift. But God's righteousness is not a paycheck for work done. It's, it's a gift. It's a gift. Verse 5, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And now Paul's going to underline the fact that it's not just Genesis 15. It's not just Abraham who received the gift of righteousness. He says, let's talk about David. Look at what David said. Verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one 
to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. There's that word count again. Instead of crediting sin to his account, God's crediting his own personal righteousness. And that is true in Abraham's day and in David's day as it is in our day today. When Paul gets to the end of this chapter, he's stressing that point. God counted Abraham's faith as righteousness, and he does the same for us. Let's look at it in verse 23. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, not just for Abraham's sake, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, Paul's going to make another point. He's established that God counts faith as righteousness, but he especially wants his readers to carefully consider the relationship between the faith that leads to this gift of God's righteousness and the sign of circumcision. We've talked about circumcision before, but in verse 9 he says, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? or also for the uncircumcised. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Paul is saying to the Jews, can't you see Circumcision had nothing to do with Abraham's righteousness. Circumcision was merely a sign that was given to Abraham after he believed God, after God credited his own righteousness to Abraham's account. Abraham was not righteous because he was circumcised. He was righteous because God declared him to be righteous because he trusted God. He believed God long before his circumcision. God's righteousness is a gift that all of us can receive, just like Abraham did, by simple faith in Jesus. Now, before we stop today, I want us to skip on down to verse 18, because in verses 18 through 21, God teaches us some really valuable things about faith from the life of Abraham, and we need to make sure we understand these things. This is tremendously important, so please sit up and Pay close attention and get this internalized. Look at verse 18. This is still God's word. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. God is teaching us here some really important things about faith. 
many, many people today are frustrated because I think they honestly want to learn how to walk by faith. They're serious about their desire to have more faith, but they don't feel like they know exactly how to go about it. Well, God teaches us about that right here. Abraham provides a wonderful example for us. First, I want us to look at verse 19. We're told that Abraham considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Now, if you're using the King James Version, or even the New King James Version, it's, it's misleading here. The Greek literally means he did consider his circumstances. He did not pretend they were not real circumstances. Humanly speaking, he and Sarah, he knew this, were just too old to have a kid. And he knew it. Sarah has been barren all her life. Abraham knew what the circumstances were. And he did not try to pretend that they weren't what they were, that they were different somehow. And you say, why are you saying all that, Steve? Listen, have you ever known of anybody who tried to summon up enough faith to be well by pretending that they really weren't sick? I've known people who tried to do that. They try to make themselves believe that they're not really sick when they are really sick. That's not biblical faith. That's an attempt at self-deception. It's wrong to try to pretend you are well, as some say to make a positive confession, that's what they call it sometimes, that you are well when you are not well. That's not speaking the truth. But Abraham knew the truth about his circumstances. He knew he was too old. He knew Sarah was too old. He knew Sarah was barren. And he honestly considered that truth. But of course, Abraham didn't stop there. He considered his circumstances, but he also considered God's promise. Look again at verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. And again in verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning what? The promise of God. The promise of God. Abraham had a promise from God. God had given Abraham his word. Look at verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what? What he had promised. You see it? Listen, guys, this is enormously important. Abraham did not just cook up an idea of what he wanted God to do. He did not decide, you know, it would be nice to be a father. It would be nice to have a lot of descendants. I think I'm just going to believe God for that. It wasn't Abraham's idea. It was God's idea. There are many, many people today who want God to do something for them. And they grit their teeth and they try to convince themselves that God's going to do what they want him to do. That's not what Abraham did. Faith does not begin with our coming up with a plan and then believing God's going to do it for us. That would be asking God to believe in us. That's exactly backward. God does not believe in us. Now, I know there's some pop spiritual mottos that think God believes in you. No, he doesn't. God doesn't have to believe in us. God knows all about us. He knows we're weak. He knows that without him, we can do nothing. He knows that we're in desperate trouble without our trusting him. Don't get that backwards. <laughs> we must not get it backwards. Faith begins with our knowing God's promise. You say, well, how can we know God's promise? Study the scriptures. 
God reveals his promises to us in his book. For example, my God shall supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's a promise. Of course, God's going to use his definition of our needs, not ours. <laughs> but that's an incredible promise. All of our real needs are going to be met. That's a promise that should be a peace giver, should be a worry killer. <laughs> Here's another one. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. If we lack wisdom, God says, I'll give it to you. He'll use his word. He'll use godly counselors and advisors. He'll use his Holy Spirit in our hearts to make sure we have the wisdom we need. That promise should be another peace giver and another worry killer. How about this one? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Satan can't stand against us. God's given us his armor. God's given us his weapons. Satan has to flee when we resist him the way God tells us to resist him in his word. That should be another peace giver and another worry killer. I'll give you one more example. There's so many more. I love this verse, though. There's no temptation or testing taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above what you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. What a wonderful promise from God. Lots of promises in God's word. So we have God's promises. He's given them to us in his word. Listen to what Paul writes a little bit later in this letter to the Romans. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through what? The word of Christ. Want more faith? Spend more time in God's word. Now, stay with me here. I don't want to chase this rabbit too far today, but I need to say that I do realize sometimes God does give a supernatural spiritual manifestation gift of faith for an individual to believe and know that God's going to do a certain thing. He does that from time to time. Have you ever studied the life of George Mueller? I believe God gave George Mueller the manifestation gift of faith that God was going to provide supernaturally for the orphans of London through Mueller. It was an awesome thing God did through George Mueller. It's a very real gift, but listen very carefully. God gives that gift at his discretion, not ours. We need to be very cautious with this truth, and this is why Satan loves to imitate this if he can. And he imitates it big time in the so-called word of faith movement and the prosperity gospel movement. Satan tries to convince people that just because they want something really badly, that God is giving them faith to believe they're going to get what they want. And Satan gets people to confuse their feelings and their desires and their wants and even their greeds with biblical faith. That's, that's a confusion from the enemy. God warns us in his word, we better try the spirits to see whether they're really of God. We got to prove all things and hold fast that which is good and true, true to God's word. We can't fall into a trap of trying to deceive ourselves or of being deceived by our enemy because of the enemy's false promises. Just remember, the primary source of God's promises is God's word. Abraham believed God's promises. So must we. There's nothing pious or humble about having little faith. Some people may think it sounds humble to say, well, I don't have much faith. 
That's the same as saying, I don't believe God will do what he promised to do. <laughs> when I say I don't have much faith, it's like calling God a liar. <laughs> That's not a very good thing, is it? Faith is just believing that God will do what he said he would do. To try to believe God will do what he's not said he would do, what he's not promised, that's not faith. That's a kind of presumption. It's a sin. Don't do that. Now, having said all of that, some of us still struggle with this. I understand that. We, we, we struggle with believing God's promises. Sometimes, you know, we might say, Lord, I want to believe, but they're so great. They seem too good to believe, too good to be true. We're a little like that man who was conflicted within his own mind, who cried out to Jesus, as is recorded in Mark chapter 9, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. He was still struggling. How do we deal with that? Well, he tells us how Abraham dealt with it. It's in verse 17. Abraham knew that God was the one who, look at this, gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. He's telling us here that Abraham carefully considered God's greatness. God had given Abraham some promises that seemed hard to believe. But when Abraham considered that God was able to raise the dead, God was able to create things out of nothing. He knew he could trust God. God can do what he says he's going to do. The writer of Hebrews tells us the same kind of thing in Hebrews chapter 11. Beginning of verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said through Isaac, shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham knew that God had made a promise. So if God has to raise the dead to keep it, so be it. That's not a problem for God. God's God. God can do anything he wants to do. So here in verse 21 of Romans chapter 4, he tells us that Abraham was fully convinced that God was able. God was able to do what he had promised. Sure, Abraham's an old man. Sure, Sarah's womb is dead. Sure, it was humanly impossible to have a child. But it's also humanly impossible to raise the dead. God can do that. It's also humanly impossible to call into being that which doesn't exist. God can do that. That's what God does. So Abraham considered the impossibility of his circumstances, yes. But he didn't stop there. He considered God's promise, yes. But he didn't even stop there. He considered the power of the God behind the promise. Now listen, this is very important. Ultimately, Faith doesn't focus on ourselves or on our faith. Faith doesn't focus on faith. Faith focuses on God. When we try to build faith by focusing on faith, we will fail. We'll be disappointed. We'll be frustrated. We do not focus on faith. We focus on God. We get to know God more and more. How? Studying his word, meditating on his attributes, his wisdom, his power, his love, his glory, his greatness, his mighty deeds. We praise him. We worship him for who he is and what he's done. The great men and women of faith throughout church history were men and women who spent much time focusing on God, not faith, God, getting to know God more and more. So we have to move our focus from our faith to our God. You remember when Jesus told Peter, get out of the boat, come to me. 
as long as Peter kept his focus on Jesus, he was fine. But when he moved his focus away from Jesus, in his case, it was on the wind and the waves, he started to sink. Look at what Paul wrote to the Philippians. This is in chapter 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, listen, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's what Paul wanted. I want to know Christ more and more. He says, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Look, here it is again, that I may know him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul's goal was to know Christ more and more and more. And that should be our goal, too. Well, there's one more thing here we can learn from Abraham. Abraham considered the circumstances, yes. He considered the promises, yes. He considered the nature of the God behind the promises. And finally, we read here, Abraham responded. He responded in obedience. Look at how the writer of Hebrews says it in chapter 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out. He obeyed. He went out, not knowing where he was going. Second, he responded by renouncing all hope in human ability. That's what he means by what we read in verse 18 back in Romans chapter 4. In hope, he believed against hope. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so, your, so shall your offspring be. He had hope against hope. The second hope in that phrase is hope in himself. He had to renounce that hope. He had to accept that he had no ability to make this promise happen. He, had, he learned that the hard way because he'd already tried that with Hagar. It's very tempting for most of us to think we can handle things when we can't. We can be very, very tempted to trust our skill to trust maybe our dollars, maybe some of our tricks, maybe some of our gimmicks or our schemes or our abilities or the people we know, our contacts, until God proves none of those things are going to work. God wants us to do what Abraham had to do, renounce our human ability and learn to trust him, learn to trust God. Now, please don't get confused here. That doesn't mean we quit doing things. Don't get that all confused. We keep on doing what God commands us to do. We keep on doing what God's given us to do, the responsibilities he's given us. But we do quit trusting ourselves. We're trusting only God. One more response of real faith is in verse 21. Abraham was fully convinced. See that phrase, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Some translations translate that being fully assured, fully convinced, fully assured. These words communicate something really wonderful. They communicate that Abraham was resting in the Lord. He's fully convinced. He's fully assured. There's no striving here. There's no struggling here. He's just resting in God, trusting God. So in Romans chapter four, we have this beautiful picture of true faith. And it's illustrated beautifully by Abraham's true faith. Faith accepts and recognizes the truth about our circumstances, but faith accepts God's promises in light of his power, in light of his greatness, and then it obeys God's word and renounces all hope in human ability and then just peacefully leaves the matter in God's hands, trusting God. That's full assurance. 
And these were not Abraham's promises to God. Remember, they're God's promises to Abraham. In the same way, we don't promise God we'll meet all our needs according to our riches. No, he promised us that according to his riches. We've not promised God that sin shall not be master over us. He promises that to us in Romans chapter 6. We've not promised God that we'll be wise. He's promised us he'll give us his wisdom. This is how we trust God. And Paul says we can learn this from Abraham's example. When I was a young man, my very favorite hymn was How Firm a Foundation. I used to sing it all the time. I used to say I would like for it to be sung at my funeral. <laughs> By the way, I quit saying that quite a few years ago now because I decided there's so many wonderful songs of biblical truth, worship and praise, so it just doesn't matter. I don't say that much anymore. But the first words of that hymn speak beautifully to what God's teaching us today. Look at these words. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. There it is. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? <laughs> Some time ago, I came across a YouTube recording of the men at a Sovereign Grace Conference singing this old hymn, and I think it'd be a good way to conclude this study today. So let's sing it with them, okay? Yeah.
Father, thank you for teaching us in Romans chapter 4 what true faith is. Thank you for teaching us that that's how we receive your righteousness, by faith. Certainly not by circumcision, certainly not by any other rite or ritual such as baptism or church membership. By trusting Jesus, we receive your righteousness. Thank you for the example you gave us in Abraham and David throughout your word. And Lord, thank you for teaching us about faith. Lord, we know that many times we're in impossible circumstances, and we want to be honest with you about our circumstances. But we know that you've made some incredible, beautiful, wonderful promises. And Lord, we want, we want you to help us learn how to learn those promises. We know that means we need to spend time in your word, studying, finding them, learning them, memorizing them, meditating on them, praying them back to you. And then, Lord, thank you not only that you have given us awesome promises, but you yourself are an awesome God. You can keep your word because you created this whole universe just by speaking the word, speaking the universe into existence. You raised Jesus from the dead. You've, you're going to raise us from the dead one of these days. Lord, you've given us incredible promises that are based on your power and your might and your nature and your character. So teach us, Lord, not to focus so much on faith, but teach us to focus on you. And, and get to know you better and better and more and more. And just learn to trust you and then learn to rest in you. Learn to obey you. Learn not to trust in ourselves. Learn to trust you and obey you and rest in your promises, knowing that you're going to do everything you said you're going to do. So thank you, Lord, for teaching us this. You're an awesome, awesome father. In Jesus' name, amen.